For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how a knock at the door changed the life of a young man who dropped out of high school. Writer Molly McCloy talks about overcoming fear to share personal stories in front of an audience. A conversation with Jess Baker about ways that weight, beauty, and happiness are portrayed in the media. And the return of a signature sound of summer, the cicada. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In January, we reported on a program called Steps to Success, an effort by Tucson city officials and community leaders to reach out and engage kids who had dropped out of school. Next, Mitchell Riley tells the story of one student who listened to the message and reconsidered what his future had to offer. And I'll wait just like one minute, and we'll be pairing up, calling out names of the team leaders and then the community members, so you will match up. It's kind of like first day of school, here's your person. On July 19, 2014, volunteers from TUSD and Tucson community leaders came together to launch the Steps to Success initiative, a door-to-door effort to encourage hundreds of students who have dropped out of school to come back and ultimately graduate from high school. As an educator in Texas, TUSD Superintendent Dr. H.T. Sanchez saw this kind of grassroots effort achieve results. We have all of you here to help and to reach out and to be that difference maker and to knock on the door and to be the smiling face and to be that helping hand. John Kramkowski, a dropout prevention specialist for TUSD, helped lead and coordinate the 36 teams either paired or in threes, uh, going all over the city. Um, but, but the general message is, no matter what your situation is, we have some resources that can help you get back on track towards graduation and towards educational success and life success. Kramkowski knows from his own experience that home visits are not a sure thing. There's a large percentage of chance that you can go do the home visit, but there won't be anybody there. With Brenda Hanna and Rosanna Ortiz. After a short presentation and training session, the groups went off to find future graduates. Uh, me, myself, I kind of thought about Kramkowski highlights the reasons why this community effort matters. We know the risks of substance abuse. We know that the risks of being incarcerated. We know that you struggle to gain employment. We know that 75% of the prison population are high school dropouts. We know these things. We know that not graduating from high school is going to impede your success in life. One of the teams on the move includes University of Arizona Athletic Director Greg Byrne. If we can have any kind of a positive impact on on just even one individual, that'll, that'll be uh, obviously worth the time and energy to do that. But most importantly, today is about getting them to, to finish their high school diploma. When no one was home, they left contact cards. Are you in school? But there was success. Are you good? Okay. Well, finish through. Okay, bud. Right. Of the nearly 800 kids identified in the July campaign and a second effort this past January, nice 620 you. were reached. 283 came back, and 31 will graduate this year. Mark Irvin, a senior board member of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Tucson, joined Greg Byrne on the visits. The last two kids we've talked to have both made a commitment. They're going to go back. They're going to they're finish. One kid we just visited with needs a half a credit to graduate from high school. The other one was what, Greg? Two and a half? Two, two and a half. Two and a half credits. One of the people they reached that day was David Forster 
Mayor Rothschild's team of volunteers made the visit. They came to my house, the mayor and a couple other people that came by and told me, you know, what are your plans? Like, or do you want to finish high school? And I told them, yeah, I do. And they said, that's great. You should follow that and finish it. He attended Tucson High. And while he was in school, he enjoyed wrestling and playing football. You know, sports really taught me if you, if you dedicate yourself, you could really make yourself better at things. You just got to show up, put the work in, and you'll succeed. It was then, during his freshman year, life threw David a curveball when his father passed away. He had committed suicide, and, you know, it really, like, took a burden on me. And I wasn't really feeling school then, you know, I just wanted to be left alone and kind of, like, recover. I felt, like, lost. I don't know what to do. I mean, it, like, sports didn't really feel the same. Like, things just didn't feel right. David took a year off from school to cope with his loss, but he became restless. I didn't like it. I didn't, I felt like I was wasting time. I felt like I wasn't exercising my brain. My brain's like a muscle. You got to keep it working for it to stay fit. It was during that time that the mayor's team connected with David. It felt good. It felt like um, when those people came and talked to me, it felt like someone like cared. Someone was watching, giving me motivation to want to come to school. Like, and I didn't know people were watching me like that. And you know, it just felt really good to know someone's out there rooting for me to finish high school. After that, just decided, you know, I need to continue on with my life. Things happen, and I can't let this slow me down. After encouragement from a former teammate. David enrolled at Project Moore High School, a place where second chances are common and students are put back on track. It was a little difficult at first, a little rusty. I had to shake off some rust, definitely, and get back to the usual, you know, waking up at 7 in the morning and then going to school, going through the classes. David flourished at Project Moore. It was the right place at the right time. Great decision. I mean, I really, I love the teachers, tons of help. You know, whenever I needed something, they were right there. All the teachers across the whole school, from the math teachers, the science teachers, the English teachers, to the counselors, the principal, everyone. I could talk to any of them with any problems I have, even if it's not school related, they'll be there for me. And it's, it's like a family here. The head of David's family is his mother, Terry, a driving force in his life in more ways than one. Taking me to school every day, you know, picking me up, helping me get through the loss of my father. I don't, I don't know how she did it, honestly. She works 12-hour shifts every day, and, like, if she can do this and have a child, you know, I can get through high school. You know, I really buckled down to show her, like, you know, I can do this. Like, I'm going to do this for you. David Angelo Forster. All that hard work paid off. On May 21st, with friends and family on hand, David Forrester graduated from Project Moore High School with the class of 2015. He hopes to become a wildland firefighter. I could get out there and become a productive member of society like that and doing something I love. And it'll keep me in shape because I love sports. I figured it's a good bet. And it's a good bet that in the not too distant future, David Forrester will be fighting fires and chasing his dreams. Give mama a kiss on the cheek. <laughs> you know, I just want to have money and be successful and, you know, just what everyone else wants, the American dream, you know, a house, a family, a car, you know, 
just the basic stuff. So that's how we ended up in this little campground in the Verde Valley, where everybody completely ignored the no public nudity sign. <laughs> it's not as romantic as it sounds. <laughs> the number one rule of nudist areas is that the people that want to get naked are never the people that you want to see naked. <laughs> Molly McCloy is a teacher and writer who lives in Tucson. She's contributed to Slate, Nerve, and Swink. She's also a three-time winner of the Moth Slam, a juried competition of live autobiographical storytelling that occurs each year in New York City, hosted by the public radio show The Moth Story Hour. McCloy's humble, ironic sense of humor permeates her stories about lessons learned from family and relationships and how they've affected her political and social awareness. I asked her how much of her stories are memorized before she takes them on stage. You know, I'm pretty well rehearsed, but I don't memorize the written piece. I like to write it out so that I can get it about the right length and figure out which details I can put in and about how long it's going to be. But then I read it out loud a couple of times, maybe twice, and then I put that away and then I uh, stand up in front of my wife, and she's got the piece of writing in front of her, and I just start speaking it as a spoken thing. And generally my goal is to speak it out about 10 times. So I'm not speaking written material that's been written out. It becomes its own sort of spoken version that changes a little bit each time that I do it. Do you know what is supposed to be the number one fear among Americans? I know that public speaking, people are more afraid of public speaking than death, right? <laughs> That's right. Spiders, snakes, <laughs> death. Yeah. So was it ever a fear for you? Did you have to overcome anything in order to do what you do now? Yeah, definitely. Um, in high school, I was really shy. In fact, I remember um, sort of freezing up during a report that I had to do in Spanish class and somebody, uh, one of the students in front of me giving me trouble about it. I actually ended up throwing a piece of chalk at the person and it was this, this thing, you know. And then, and then I had to teach and I had to figure out how to do public speaking in order to teach. And I remember um, I was talking with my first uh, class of students and I didn't even realize that I was doing it until one of my students said, uh, Miss McCloy, why are you writing on your shoe? And I looked down and I had been doodling like all over this tennis shoe that I was wearing. And I said, because I'm nervous as hell, you know. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have had to overcome the fear of public speaking. And for a long time, I saw performance just as something that I had to do occasionally as a writer. And it's just recently, after winning some of these moth slams, that I've started to realize I've, I've sort of crossed this line and I, and I am a performer. So for a long time, I saw myself as a writer that just occasionally performed, and now I'm starting to see myself as a, more as a performer. What can you tell people who have never attended a live storytelling performance? What can you say to them about the value of participating? Well, first of all, I think when people hear storytelling, they think sometimes of story time, which is like the child's librarian and the kids sitting around and children's stories being read aloud. So first of all, I'd like to dispel that notion. <laughs> um, but next, what I'd like to say is that I think that live 
uh, storytelling, which is almost always nonfiction, is is one of the most engaging literary formats I've ever experienced. Uh, there's no page between the performer and the audience. It's very interactive. And generally, it's people telling true stories about their lives. And so it can be really funny or it can be really moving. I guess what I would want to tell people is just come and check it out. You'll, you'll be surprised. You'll be moved. You'll, be, uh, you'll feel more involved than you might think. We weren't sure what to do at first, but finally it was decided that we'd just plow on through the intervention for Joe anyway because my dad had already paid the counselor and he wanted to get his money's worth. <laughs> at 10 the next morning, Joe walked into my mom's house carrying his skateboard. We all filed out of my parents' bedroom like it was a surprise party and we sat him down. My mom read her letter to Joe first, but she had to stop in the middle of it to tell Joe to take his hand out of his pants because he was slouching on the couch like Al Bundy. <laughs> I read my letter and no one listened. <laughs> well, we've been talking a lot about the things that you take with you on stage to do your performances, but let's talk about something that you were able to take back off the stage that you feel has made you into a better writer. I think it's helping me a lot with editing. I've had to take a lot of stuff out to meet time limits and um, I've gotten a lot more ruthless with getting rid of um, extra tangents that don't add to the story and because I'll, I'll look at a story and I realize oh I only have eight minutes to do this and this is this is coming out at 12 minutes and so I, I can't do the little sidetrack tangent here. I've got to, I've got to take this out. I've got to streamline it. I've got to, you know, have every part of it relating to the story. So it's helped me a lot with story structure and editing story and, uh, you know, getting things kind of streamlined and snappy. Would you say that this is, um, a secret talent that you have, maybe something that was even secret from yourself? (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea that I was going to do live nonfiction storytelling back when I was what, studying poetry back in 1988, 1989. And then I started doing the written nonfiction memoir. And I had a teacher that said, you should go do this thing called The Moth. And, you know, this is this hot thing right now. And the first time I got up, I got up with just an outline and bombed, you know. So, yeah, especially at that point, I had no idea that I would be able to do this. But um, I eventually started watching other people do it and kind of figured it out and realized, oh, you know, once I started winning these things, I was like, oh, I'm pretty good at this, you know. Molly McCloy will return to New York City in August to take part in another Moth Story Slam. Although she's traveling for much of the summer, she often participates with Odyssey Storytelling here in Tucson. You can find more information online at azpm.org. Jess Baker is better known as the Militant Baker Online. In less than three years, she's become a nationally recognized body image activist and the co-founder of the Body Love Conference that was held last weekend in Tucson. Baker says her message is to help women and men feel more attractive and positive about their individuality, even when they're perceived as being outside the narrow portrayal of beauty that's offered by entertainment and advertising. I began our conversation by asking Baker about two examples from the world of film, Melissa McCarthy and Rebel Wilson. While both have starred in some of the highest-grossing comedies of the decade, 
their online media coverage is often primarily concerned with their body shape and size. You know, I have a personal friend. Her name is Tess Holiday, Tess Munster. She um, is no stranger to the exact same thing. And she was just on the cover of People magazine, actually. Yeah, and she's the first super plus size model uh, who signed with an agency. And she's a size 22, super short, super fat, which, by the way, is not a bad word, uh, just what we construct about it. And I'm no stranger to this, and neither is she. And so if I look into her comment sections as well, um, you'll see the same thing. So why does this happen? Um, and, and see, yeah. now here you have a woman who's successful in her field. Yes. Yet people are feeling the need to label her and to put these comments on it, just like with Wilson and McCarthy, yes, who are demonstrably two of the most successful comedians out there right now. Yes. Okay. So they all have the same thing in common, right? Yeah. So why are, why are people drawn <laughs> to that, though, to make negative comments? Why okay. aren't people drawn to that to make more positive ones? Oh, my God. Because body insecurity is something we all have. And... You know, I have yet to meet, so I speak to thousands of people. I've met millions of people online, literally. And I have yet to meet someone who doesn't have an insecurity. And, and that's just, that comes from very well-played advertising, right? And decades of media created to make us feel inferior. So we all have it. Now, body currency is this, this concept that we're, we're taught subliminally and sometimes just outright, where we are told that if we want to be successful, worthy, loved, and ultimately happy, we must first achieve this ideal body, um, which it shifts throughout time, but mostly it's white, right? Cisgender, able-bodied, thin, but not too thin, and right now very healthy. That's the body we want. And so we're told if we achieve this, we will have all of those other things. It's a promise. We are like on the road to the pot of gold. And so everyone invests their entire life in it. We spend our entire life trying to perfect this body. and and. Really, just so you know, 95% of women will never naturally have the body shape we see in media. So it's kind of a try and failure thing, and it just really builds up a lot of, of self-hatred. So what happens when people like Melissa McCarthy and Rebel Wilson and Tess Holliday come out? They have not done the work, right? They're not our perfect body. Um, they're fat, and they're still successful and worthy and have found love and are happy. And what that means is it's a threat to us because we haven't achieved that yet. And here are these women who are not following the rules and they cut in line. They found happiness first and that's not okay because they didn't play by the rules. So they kind of ripped us off. We've invested all of our money, all of our time, all of our energy, all of our soul into achieving this perfect body that we haven't had yet. And they have found it first. And it's just creates so much resentment and anger. And, and it's subconscious, too. For so many people, they don't know why they loathe fat people so much. Um, but that's one of the reasons. And there's several other reasons, like institutionalized sexism, where we want women to stay in line. So when you're fat, you've cut in line, and you're loud, then you really are some force to be reckoned with. And another reason is because we have highly curated uh, fat characters in our media. So we only see fat people represented in very uh, minimal ways. Um, there's three very prevalent ones that we see all the time. We see uh, the fat funny person, we see the fat stupid person, and we see the fat villain. Those are three out of like 16 that we normally see. <laughs> and so what that does is this creates this perspective in which we perceive fat people. 
It's important to note that not all fat characters are those things, but more often than not, they're portrayed in negative lights. Right. And regardless, their their size is going to be a part of their character yes. one way or another. Yep. Whether they're happy with it or unhappy with it. Maybe the fat friend comes over and they're wearing workout clothes. Yep. Oh, you know, they've been at the park. They're trying to change. Mm-hmm. But there they are. They're dipping into the candy bowl or whatever, showing that, well, they're still the fat friend. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. what I notice is yes. that it can't. They can't just be who they are. Correct. It's not enough, right? And what that does to us as a society is it creates this very narrow framework for us to process the bodies in. So then when we see Rebel Wilson, Melissa McCarthy, Tess Holliday not being those things, literally our brains break. We just don't know how to deal with that. We don't know how to cope. We're freaking out. We're really uncomfortable. And so then we just get angry because that's kind of how we react to those type of things that are very threatening. So it's really fascinating, multifaceted. Uh, But those are a few reasons why we love to hate successful, happy, worthy, loved fat people. And I love them for it. I'm so glad they're out there being happy. So to talk about another female comedian who's experiencing a great wave of popularity right now is Amy Schumer. And a large amount of her material revolves around body image issues. I wonder sometimes if too much of her material doesn't revolve around it. But here I am. I'm a middle-aged white guy watching this at home. How do you feel about that? Um, Do you think that she is, in fact, playing into the stereotype that all women are hyper-obsessed with their body image? That's a great question. It really would be an opinion. I don't know if there's a right answer for that. Uh, I personally don't. It's something we are hyper obsessed with, Mm -hmm. most of us, to be honest with you. You know, 91% of women are dieting. So, um, (laughs) you know, a large majority of of fourth and fifth graders are dieting. So to pretend like it's not an obsession would be silly. Fourth and fifth graders are dieting now. And that's... 40%. I I would assume that the age has been getting lower as time goes on. More and more younger girls are getting obsessed with this part. Yeah, and and as more and more research comes out, which we hate to fund this stuff because it doesn't support our weight loss claims, but as we do more and more research, we are seeing an increase in numbers, and it's just the way it is. You know, the statistic is 9 and 10-year-olds are more afraid of being fat, this body type we vilified, than they are of cancer, war, or losing both their parents. So it's their biggest fear. So yes, are we obsessed? Of course we are. Is Amy Schumer bringing it to light with a you know, a smile and a really hilarious video. Yes. And I appreciate that because I deal well with uh, irreverent portrayals of, of problems. I think that sometimes you do have to laugh about it or else you just end up home crying. Um, and that's my approach too, is to, you know, bring a little bit of humor. So I love it right now. Body positivity, body acceptance is, is now in the mainstream and it's stayed in the academic circles for so long. I mean, it's been around forever. There've been fat activists and body activists for Decades and decades and decades. Um, But just now, are we starting to see it on Upworthy and BuzzFeed and all of these other places where it's reaching people who haven't even heard of it? Um, And that's kind of my role, too, in the there's a lot of different kind of activists. And mine is the I'm going to take some academic theories. I'm going to intersperse it with curse words, break it down for you real simple, and then we can talk about it. Uh, Because I feel like it needs to reach a lot more people than it currently is. And I'm so I'm glad to see Amy Schumer also doing that, really. That was Jess Baker, a Tucson-based blogger and body love advocate. She has a new book coming out in October called Things No One Will Tell Fat Girls. You can find the link for more information on the Arizona Spotlight page, azpm.org. The persistent buzz of the cicada. It's one of the signature sounds of summer. But why and how do these little creatures make such a big noise? Tony Paniagua asked retired University of Arizona entomology professor Carl Olson to share the secrets of the cicada. 
we've got a ton of different types of cicadas around Tucson. But right now, probably there's two of them that are real active that people hear, but the one that's the most uh, obvious is the um, Diceroprocta semisyncta, which is a relative. Some people call them the Apache cicada. There's, it's tough to put common names on them. But this one, I started hearing it sing the end of May, and it will go on through August, maybe even into September. And they make that loud, shrill noise. And they don't expend a whole lot of energy doing it, but it's the males that are singing to attract females. And they sing typically the loudest in the hottest part of our days. So if you're out at noon or one or two, you're going to hear these cicadas just singing their hearts out to try and attract the females. And when you're hearing them, usually you're only hearing one per tree. So they make quite a racket. Each different species of cicada has different strategies for keeping predators away from them. But this one is just sing at the hottest part of the day so that nothing else is active except the females and entomologists listening to them. And the neat thing about these cicadas is that they've evolved a series of tubes that allow them to put out moisture around their body so they have a swamp cooling effect at the hottest part of the day. And you'd think, well, it's disadvantageous to lose that much water, but they can just tap in with their beak into the plant that they're sitting on and continue drinking. So they make up the lost moisture by drinking from the trees. It's kind of interesting because the cicada is essentially associated with the humpback flute player in Navajo legend and that uh, it was supposedly talking about harvest and and good things like that. So they're going to lay eggs in twigs or branches, and they may oviposit, oh, five, ten per twig. And when the eggs hatch, the immatures fall down to the ground, and they burrow into the soil, and they'll get around roots of some of the plants that they're near, and they tap in with their beak and drink a little bit. So it usually takes three, maybe four years underground as a nymph, and then they'll emerge. But we see annual emergences because they sort of stagger their emergence. So each year we get cicadas. But underground, there's still some generations that are still developing. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.